You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Anthony Doerr. This program originally aired in 2017. What's happening? This place is awesome. Love this theater. The bathrooms are nicer than incredible. You guys been in there? And there's a bar and a band? I just landed at Logan and drove up, and it's like, uh, it just floods me with nostalgia. I went to Bowdoin College, right? And spring, these are those days when like, we would just go outside. Even though it's only like 50 degrees, you just go outside in a tank top and like shorts play wiffle ball for nine hours straight. I know I have some Bowdoin friends here. I can't see anything except lights, but I love you guys. Thanks for coming out, and thanks to all of you guys. Okay, I'm just going to get started, and then I'm going to hang out with Virginia on some cool-looking chairs, and then hopefully we'll have a good time. I'm going to ask you some questions at the beginning, and then you guys get the chance to ask me some questions with those note cards. Okay, we ready? Can you hear me okay? All right, here we go. I was an unusual kid. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, there's Cleveland? This is like utopia. 400 miles from the nearest ocean, but I collected seashells. By the time I was seven, I couldn't hit a baseball to save my life. But I performed enough chores in my mom's garden that I could tell the difference between impatience, trailing vincas, and petunias. By the time I was 10, I knew the name and number of every single player on the 1983 Cleveland Browns. But I also went to bed reading Carl Sagan and Charles Darwin. When folks would ask what I wanted to be when I grew up, my answer would depend entirely on whatever book I happened to be reading at the moment. I read Jack London's The Call of the Wild and decided that I needed to become a mail carrier in the Yukon. For a week that January, I slept with the window of my bedroom open to prepare my body for the cold (laughs) until my dad figured out why the house was freezing and put an end to that. Then I read George Plimpton's Paper Lion. Do you guys know this book? Uh, He was a journalist who wormed his way into the Detroit Lions for the preseason. The players didn't know he was a journalist, but the coaches did. He managed to take five snaps, a quarterback at an inter-squad scrimmage, and lose significant yards on all five. (laughs) I love that detail. After I read that, I was determined to become a punt returner in the NFL until my brother started tackling me after I tried to return their punts, and a broken arm put an end to that. For a year, I kept an aquarium full of frogs and tadpoles and bluegill uh, in my bedroom because I'd read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and was determined to become a marine biologist. But then someone bought me a book about Frank Lloyd Wright, and I promptly traded the aquarium to my brother for all of his Legos and started telling my folks that I wanted to be an architect. This equivocation was not something that I outgrew. During my first year in college, I took Latin American Studies, Philosophy, and Sociology. During my second year, I took Nutrition, the Civil Rights Movement, Astronomy, and Religious Studies. (laughs) To me, the course catalog was kind of like an all-you-can-eat buffet. There wasn't a thing in there that I didn't want on my plate. But by the end of sophomore year, for some reason, they wanted me to declare a major. I made an appointment, this is true, with the assistant dean to talk about the errors of such a strange requirement. Assistant Dean was this tall, severe woman in a green suit. She told me she wasn't prepared to abolish the policy of having students complete requirements for a major field of study, started flipping through papers on her desk. I asked if maybe uh, she could cut down the number of courses that have to take in a major so I could take more electives. She asked me if I knew the definition of the word dilettante. I said no. (laughs) She said, look it up. And and, then she said that the next time I come into her office, I might be more persuasive if I wear a different shirt, one that had sleeves on it. (laughs) It also, I think, said, give blood, play rugby on it. It's a very classy, very classy t-shirt. So I reluctantly declared myself a history major, but before I graduated, I still managed to sneak in Russian and constitutional law and architecture and environmental science 101, all of which meant that when I graduated, most of my friends went and got jobs. 
And I drove with a buddy who's here to Telluride, Colorado, and cooked calamari in a deep fryer and skied moguls every day for 80 days straight. <laughs> then I drove to New Jersey to visit my oldest brother. He had fi recently finished two masters and a PhD at MIT in electrical engineering. <laughs> I would never, ever be accused of being a dilettante. He had just been hired as an optics researcher at Bell Labs. He showed me his lab, which is full of lasers, none of which I was allowed to touch. And then he took me upstairs into this dark room. He flipped a bunch of switches and turned on a monitor on this big machine, and he showed me this. Anybody want to try to guess what that thing is? Or guess what the machine is? Was? If, that, if it helps you, since we have a nice big screen, that's, those are micrometers on the bottom, that scale, that's a millionth of a meter. So you're looking at something very small. The machine was an electron microscope, electron scanning microscope. And that is the eye of a housefly, an extreme magnification. Housefly eyes are amazing. There's a reason it's so hard to swat those things. Thousands of tiny images coalesce into a one visual image in their brains. And this enables them to see even the slightest movements in an extremely wide field. They can see almost 360 degrees. And they can sense movement in extremely low light. Plus, they can see polarized light. All these things we can't do. We think we're so great and at the top of the animal kingdom, but their eyes are, in many ways, more sophisticated than ours. I wondered what it was like for the fly's minuscule brain trying to synthesize all of that, those different visual inputs. If its brain was something like a security guard scanning hundreds of camera monitors. Uh, one of my brother's colleagues came in that day and he explained that the motion center in the fly's brain is uh, about one-sixth of a cubic millimeter of brain matter, and yet it can process, it could process massive amounts of information about movement in real time. At least at that time, no computer, even one he said the size of a station wagon, possessed that kind of computational power. And they live at most like 30 days. It's incredible. Then he showed me a silicon chip that they tried to glue to the fly's nose, those are like nerdy scientist hijinks. <laughs> and then they show me this. I guess, I'm sure some of you can guess what that is. Yeah, that's a mite. It's a dust mite. The, this is a dust mite riding on the, the housefly. These things thrive everywhere. A single gram of dust might contain about 250 of these animals, although apparently that can double in feather pillows. So you can think about that tonight. <laughs> I wondered, what does that thing know? Does it know it's riding on a fly? Does it feel like this? <laughs> I saw that and thought, if the dust mite rides on the house fly, what rides on the dust mite? Sometimes we get stuck in our own heads and our own lives and the scale of our own hours, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and you forget that our systems of perception are just one way of experiencing the world. We forget what's possible. So give you guys a few more examples of everyday things viewed through an electron scanning microscope. I think I have them in order of difficulty. We're gonna quiz Portsmouth, okay? You ready? What do you think that is? Beautiful, they're trucking through you moving oxygen around. What do you think that is? Velcro, nicely done, excellent. What do you think that is? Pollen, good guess, not right though, but you're thinking around the right size-ish. Ova, very good, that's a human egg cell. Just got fertilized, as you probably know, the surface of the egg changes after the first sperm gets in. So it depends what point of view you look at this photo, it's either a very happy photo or not so much. These are all the sad guys. How about that? I guarantee all of you have seen this in the past weeks. That's salt and pepper. A bunch of you have seen this maybe in the past couple of days, maybe around breakfast time, if that's a clue. Bread's a good guess, it's not bread. That is a banana getting kind of torn open, a banana. It looks like an alien spaceship or something. How about that? Hair, good guess, it's human hair. Can you guess where without yelling out profanities? That's a human eyebrow and it's super gross, right? Our eyebrows are gross. Last one, what do you think that is viewed through an electron microscope? It's really hard. That's used dental floss. Oh. 
Let's see if we can make it any bigger. That night, after patrolling the eyes of a housefly at a thousand times magnification, I went back to my brother's apartment in Jersey and wrote in a notebook about what he and his colleagues had shown me that day. I tried to communicate curiosity, the grandeur that I saw in the simple housefly, how its very body communicated the refining power of eons of natural selection. What I was really trying to do is render a sense of wonder in language. But I was a very inexperienced writer. I was probably 22. And mostly what came out was more along the lines of this. <laughs> even though it would be years before I would write anything worth publishing, before I could even admit to myself that that's what I wanted to do with my life, I started devoting whole notebooks to recording the things that amazed and interested me, that opened up my sense of scale, compelled my imagination, and allowed me, like those photographs, to see ordinary things in extraordinary ways. So I'll give you guys a few examples from my early notebooks before I get to the novel. What, do you th what kind of bird is that? I, I bet you guys can do this, because you live by the ocean, some of you. Turn, very good, beautiful. That's an Arctic turn. I'm sure many of you can guess who painted it. John James Audubon. Try to guess the average weight of an adult Arctic turn. Two pounds is a good guess, a little heavy. Three ounces, same as this, with no water though, no water. Three ounces, and yet, powered by little tiny fish, cod, marine worms, Arctic worms, the average Arctic tern migrates 43,000 miles every year. These are the geolocation tracks of 11 of these incredible animals, tracked from breeding colonies in Greenland and Iceland down through the South Atlantic and into Antarctica during our winter. Some are turning around right now, starting to come back up the coast off Maine. Arctic terns see more daylight than any other creature on the planet, and they routinely live into their 20s, which means many of them travel over 1.5 million miles in their lives. That's enough to fly to the moon and back three times, and they weigh three ounces. That's one kind of scale. Here's another. Anybody recognize that tree? If you have really good eyesight, you can see a man at the top and a man at the bottom. It's at the other end of the country in Sequoia. It's a sequoia, very good. It's the president's tree in what they call the giant forest in Sequoia National Park. It's not the tallest tree in the world, but we think it's the third largest by volume. President's tree is 3,200 years old, which means it was a sapling at the time of the first Trojan War, which is amazing to me. Actually, on the way in, I saw an amazing horse chestnut tree here in town. You guys know this tree? It said it was planted in 1776. Pretty cool. Anyway, three millennia is no match for this guy. This is old Tico, and he is a Norway spruce tree in Sweden, and he is 9,558 years old. It's named for one of the dogs on the research team who carbon dated it. I love that they named these trees for their dogs. This might be the oldest living individual tree on Earth. Its trunk sprouts and dies back every six centuries or so, but its root system is much older. Many of the roots of old Tico have been dated back to 7,550 BC, right at the end of the last ice age. For comparison, writing, when humans started scribbling on tablets and making cuneiform and stuff. That's about 4,000 BC. So this tree was 3,500 years old by that point. Here you can see him in the winter looking brave or sad, depending on your point of view. Anytime I started to feel like I was running out of time to choose a normal career, stop scribbling in notebooks, I'd think of ancient trees like the President's Tree or Old Tico and try to imagine the winters that they've seen come and go and the winds and the silences. Organisms like these remind us that maybe there's another way to look at time, that maybe we don't need to feel so stressed out by a delayed flight or a looming exam or a sore throat, that maybe it's okay to just stand silently in the weather once in a while and feel the sunlight or the rain falling on our limbs. Okay, a couple more questions for you, and then I'll stop bugging you. What do you think the most abundant vertebrate on the planet is? So something with a backbone. Can't be an insect. I think the most common vertebrate on the planet is? Mouse. Oh, yes, yeah, somebody's already on the right thing. At first, I thought mouse or rats, right? Then I thought, maybe it's chickens. Uh, uh, apparently, the United Nations estimates there are 20 billion chickens at any one time on the planet which cracks me up mostly because I love to imagine the guy who sits there to estimate chickens for the UN. <laughs> Today, son, I guessed at the number of chickens in Indonesia. But the most common vertebrate on the planet 
is a fish. It's the bent tooth bristle mouth, tiny bioluminescent fish that lives in deep ocean water. If your brain is like mine, you were being a terrestrial chauvinist and trying to think of land animals, and we were forgetting that the seas are, on average, two and a half miles deep. On land, animals like us, we live right on the surface, or maybe like birds, 100 meters above the surface, or worms and burrows and caves. But in the ocean, animals live at the surface, they live in the midwater, and they live in the bottom of the deepest trenches, six and a half miles down. Which just means that 99% of the biosphere, a fancy word for space inhabitable by Earth's creatures, exists in the oceans. And 85% of that is beyond the reach of sunlight. So by far, the most common place to live on Earth is not the desert or the forest or a city, but in the vast, cold, and fluid environment that is the deep sea. Which maybe will lead you to my last question. What do you think the most common form of communication is on Earth? What do you think the most common way one member of a species lets another member know that it's in danger or that it's randy? <laughs> Song is what I thought. Sound, right? Vibration of some type, but that was wrong. And then I wanted to have a joke about Twitter, so I put the funniest tweet I could find. This tweet makes me crack up. Most common form of communication on Earth is light, bioluminescence. 90% of deep sea animals create their own light. And we know so little about them. In almost every way, they remain mysteries to us. For the last 25 years, a new deep sea species has been discovered on average every two weeks. Like this big, strange, cool anemone that was photographed for the first time uh, just last month on a seamount 10,000 feet below the surface. I've loved, that's two miles, by the way, it's incredible. I've loved reading about the deep ocean since I was a boy, reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but I wasn't able to put together a good piece of writing about it until I'd worked on something for well over a decade, finally turned it into a publishable short story called The Deep. Even as a boy, I was fascinated by hibernation, the strange middle ground it presents between sleep and death, but it wasn't until I'd worked on drafts for years that I managed to transform a bunch of pages about hibernating animals into a functional short story that became part of my first book. Same was true with whale strandings. Why do whales commit suicide if that's what they're doing? A question that also factored into my first book, The Shell Collector. And snow, why do snow crystals bother to be so beautiful? A question that really determined the nucleus of my second book. And the Pantheon in Rome. How did the ancient Romans, without cranes or modern science, engineer a concrete roof that has lasted 2,000 years? We still don't understand exactly how they did it. A question that really formed the starting point for my third book, Four Seasons in Rome. And the way memories are made. Why do certain memories remain intact in Alzheimer's patients while others wither? Why, for example, long after my grandmother had forgotten my name, could she still beat the pants off me at gin rummy? a question I examined in my fourth book, Memory Wall. In each of these projects, I tried to find questions that fascinated me and that helped me see the familiar world in an unfamiliar way, but it wasn't until I tried to build stories up around those questions that anybody became interested in what I was writing. What I had to learn during the long apprenticeship, since my brother showed me the eye of a housefly, was that to, sh to reach readers to share how dazzled I felt by our world, I had to learn to relate things on human scales and through human eyes. I had to give my questions to my characters. That's my kid at the beach in Oregon. You can't just tell a reader this is awesome. You have to help your reader feel awe. And I think the way to do that is to transfer the amazement I feel for various subjects into the hearts of fictional characters. I try to let my own enthusiasm for something deeply interesting in the world seep into their lives and then hopefully like a virus into the life of a reader. Which brings me to the reason a lot of you showed up today. Uh, winter day, almost 13 years ago now, when I had a one year thing at Princeton, so I took a train from Princeton, New Jersey to New York City. Uh, it's like an hour. Uh, I just completed the book that had started with my fascination with snow. I was searching around for a new idea. I had a little notebook open in my lap. So this is 2004. Does that make you nostalgic for 2004? <laughs> a little bit? <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> Back then, Donald Trump's ambitions were a little bit smaller. <laughs> and this was a hands-free adapter.
The man in the seat in front of me was talking to somebody on his 2004-ish cell phone about the sequel to The Matrix, The Matrix Revolutions, it was called. As we pulled into Penn Station, you know, you're going like 50 miles an hour and you're going underground. Steel and concrete are flowing above the train. His call dropped and he got angry. In my opinion, he got unreasonably angry. He started swearing and rapping his phone with his knuckles. After I stopped fearing for my safety for a moment, I said to myself what he's forgetting, but really what we're all, what we're all forgetting anytime we use one of these things is that what he's doing is a miracle. He's using two little radios, a receiver and a transmitter crammed into something no bigger than a deck of cards to send and receive little packets of light between hundreds of radio towers, one after the next, miles apart, each connecting to the next at the speed of light. And he's using this magic to have a conversation about Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I just Googled flattering photograph, Keanu Reeves, and that's what came up. I thought because we're habitualized to it, we've stopped seeing the grandeur of this breathtaking act. The magic of it has bled away. So I decided to try to write something that would help us feel that power again, to feel the strangeness and the sorcery of hearing the voice of a stranger or a distant loved one in our heads. So that very afternoon, almost 13 years ago now, I wrote a title in my notebook. Titles usually come slow to me, but in that case, I had the title before I had anything else. All the light we cannot see. Visible light, as you probably know, the light we can see is an infinitesimal fraction of all the light that's streaming through our atmosphere every second. Bracketing visible light shines so much light we cannot see x-rays and cosmic rays and microwaves and radio waves, ultraviolet rays. If you have good eyesight, you can see some many jokes on here like NPR pledge drives located somewhere on the electromagnetic spectrum. <laughs> Indeed, this is amazing to me, the light that we can see, color, the way we drive our cars and see our lovers, comprises less than one ten trillionth of all the light that's out there. So that night, after I got back to Princeton from New York, all I had was that title, and I just started a piece of fiction in which a girl reads a story to a boy over a radio. I conceived of her as blind and him as trapped in darkness, and the sound of her voice carried by that invisible light as his salvation. For months, I played around with this story. I liked the parallel of the two of them in supposed darkness, her blind, him in blackness. And even in those early drafts, I had a sense that she could see things he could not, that she was maybe in every way, or in almost every way, a more capable human being than he was. I soon found myself trying to tell a story that might express not just how limited our view of the world is in terms of our physical senses, but also in terms of uh, uh, the way we see the world politically, culturally, and scientifically. But I didn't yet know where and when this thing would be set. I didn't know what stories she'd be reading to him over the radio. I didn't know why I was trapped. I didn't really yet know who they were. Then over a year later, I went to France on book tour. How are we doing on time? Uh, okay, I'll just quickly tell you that French book tours are very different than American book tours. For example, in, in the States, if you're like, going to go on FM radio to ask about your book, you know, they'd be like, Anthony Dorr, welcome to WMMS. Uh, can you tell us what your book is about? You have 14 seconds. You know? <laughs> And you're like, um, well, there's a girl. And they're like, thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> you know, witchy woman by the eagles. <laughs> right? That's America. But in France, like in France, they have like a primetime show on Thursday nights about books where like the host is super handsome and famous. And you go, like you go on the radio in France and they're like, Anthony, you know, welcome, you know. We have one hour, no commercials. What is your theory of beauty? <laughs> You're like, oh. Anyway, uh, we, late in the tour, we went to Brittany. Uh, uh, this is my third grade map quest slide for you to see where Samaloa is. I had never been to Brittany. I had never been to Samaloa. I never heard of it. It was dark when we arrived, and they put us in a restaurant with journalists and everybody smoking. And eventually, I just kind of ducked down the back and walked up three flights of stairs because I couldn't take the secondhand smoke anymore and found myself atop the ramparts encircling this amazing town. It was low tide. The tides are huge there. The tide was out almost a mile. The low tide beaches were glimmering in the moonlight. The lamps were glowing. And I felt as if I had stumbled into an imaginary city, a place that was part fairy tale castle, part M.C. Escher etching, if you remember those etchings, part mist and ocean wind and lamplight. The next day, we had, 12, we, had, uh, we had the day off. So I walked the city for like 12 hours around it, and through it, 
and inside of it. And I fell under the spell of these old granite mansions, centuries-old houses of former pirates and fishermen and sea captains. And like a foolish American might, I said to my editor, it's amazing to walk through a city so old. He said, actually, Samalo was almost entirely destroyed uh, at the end of the Second World War in 1944, primarily by American bombs and artillery. Here you can see that a lot of the photos that were around me the whole time I worked on the book. This was the first time napalm was used in modern warfare. That's when I thought, maybe I found the place where my boy with his radio could be trapped, listening to the blind girl on the radio. What I wondered was it like to live through a bombardment, and what in particular was it like for children? So off I went for another year reading about the siege of Saint-Malo and the German fortifications of the Atlantic Wall and the occupation of France. I had to give myself another college education, so to speak. I read about radio waves and American artillery companies and French snails and the invasion of Paris four years before in June of 1940, which in turn got me reading about the massive effort to protect Europe's cultural treasures against the Nazis in the weeks before the invasion, as I'm sure many of you know. With almost no notice, the whole city of Paris had to start shipping its valuables out of town. At the Louvre, they evacuated all sorts of masterpieces. That's a Rembrandt in the corner. I'm sure you know that painting. And at the Natural History Museum, one of my favorite places in the world, I wonder what sorts of incredible treasures in that place would need to have been protected. The museum's collections of fossils, botanical samples, and seashells are amongst the best in the world. Got to keep, there we go. But if there's one place in that whole complex that dazzles my imagination, it's the Gallery of Mineralogy, inside of which waits the stupefying display of minerals and crystals and gemstones. There's there are topazes in there and pyromorphite and royal opals and ink and gold and uncut rubies and the sapphire of Louis XIV is in there and, of course, diamonds. So I started imagining that the girl and her father might have fled Paris from the Natural History Museum carrying something of great value. So now after several years of being a dilettante and about 40 different subjects, <laughs> I finally had a fair amount of the girl's backstory figured out and started work on her narrative in earnest, sending her to Saint-Malo where I decided she'd have a great uncle and could safely wait out the war there. In the meantime, I needed to work on the boy's story. I knew now that I wanted him to be from the other side of the war so that their intersection would be fraught and unlikely. So I started reading about the kinds of things that might have affected the life of a young person in Germany in the 1930s. And since I was reading about radio, one of the things I found rather quickly was this line of radio receivers called the People's Receivers. These were state-sponsored and subsidized radios, which is just a clever way of saying the government helped manufacturers make them cheaper. They had deliberately reduced the sensitivity so that it would be hard to get foreign broadcasts. They were incapable of shortwave, and they were only marked for German and Austrian stations. As early as 1932, Goebbels could see how invaluable it would be to make radio reception affordable. Radios were too expensive for most folks in the depressed Germany in which Hitler came to power. So they worked with manufacturers to build first this one, with 76 Reichsmarks, it was half the price of other receivers on the market, and it was cool. It had a pretty early form of plastic in it. Kids, in particular, wanted it in their kitchens, wanted their parents to get it, and became very popular. They would sell 7 million of these uh, Volksempfangers, they were called, this model, by 1939. Later, they came out with an even cheaper model, which only cost about half the price. Eventually, these machines were a crucial tool in depriving millions of people of the ability to think critically and independently. I'm sure some of your German is better than mine, but it says something like, the whole of Germany hears the Führer with the Volksempfanger. That's the people's receiver. In 1939, it became punishable by hard labor in Germany to listen to foreign broadcasts. And by 1944, towards the end of the war, the Gestapo was running a brutal campaign advertising shortwave radios and then arresting and shooting the people who bought them. And of course, I started reading about the Hitler Youth. Uh, how German school weeks were reorganized so that Wednesday evenings and Saturdays were reserved for youth activities, how compulsory service became mandatory for boys and then girls too, and about paramilitary schools that had been created by the Nazis for the quote-unquote racially elite. Schools where boys, and in a few cases girls, were painstakingly brainwashed into becoming violent and unquestioning machines. 
all along, I kept asking myself what would become one of the central questions of the novel. Is it right to do something just because everybody else is doing it? And all along, I worried, how could I take a World War II story, a period about which so much has been written, and try to make it feel new again? Could I ask myself and my readers to empathize as deeply with a German boy as I could with a French girl? Uh, six years into the project, still no real end in sight to my wife's great thrill, I'm sure, uh, when I came across this photograph. This is Hans-George Henke. Uh, he was 15 years old here in 1945. He was captured by the United States 9th Army in Rechtenbach, Germany. It's in Bavaria. His father had died in 1938. And his mother had died in 1944. And he joined an anti-air squad to support himself. I pinned this photo to the wall in my office. And the longer I looked at it, the more I started to see. His uniform's too big for him, perhaps inherited from somebody who no longer needed it. And it just seems to me, the more I started to try to imagine it, it just seems to me that everything he was told growing up, perhaps even on one of these radios that I showed you, is turning out to not be true. I was not used to feeling empathy for German citizens during the war. Indeed, in many ways, growing up, I had been encouraged not to. But I decided to try to use the lessons that I've been learning all along as I was coming up as a writer. I tried to invest some of my own passions in the boy, particularly the amazement I felt and feel at the miracle of radio. As you might know, there are 187 chapters in the final version of the novel. Many of them are shorter than a single page, and they alternate back and, back and forth between the girl, who I named Mahri, and the boy, who I named Verna. The book embraces my childhood love for lots of different things, flowers and birds and puzzles and mazes. And because I wanted the shape of the book to mimic a labyrinth, to echo, for example, the forms of the puzzle boxes that Mahri's father builds for her, it took a full decade to solve all the puzzles of its structure. In many ways, writing this novel was like hopping around the college course catalog all over again, trying to teach myself bits of French and German, trying to understand how military occupations work, how the Atlantic Wall was built. One day I'd be learning how bunkers were fortified, and the next I'd be trying to understand what kind of meals a Breton housekeeper might have cooked with ration tickets in 1943. Eventually, I kept reverting to the lessons I'd already learned to try to invest in the particular and specific humanity of the characters that I was creating, that the path to the largest questions runs through the smallest particulars, and that any journey toward the universal runs through the individual. I wanted my readers to re-see things that we take for granted, things that have become so familiar to us that we no longer see them clearly, not just silly things like salt and pepper, but things like electromagnetic communication or bread or the freedom to walk to a bakery or out onto a beach or just the freedom to be able to listen to whatever music we'd like to listen to. I even wanted to try to remind myself and the reader that the simple act of seeing can be miraculous and strange if we look at the world with new eyes. Almost done. Uh, 80 days ago, although it may seem like 80 weeks to some of us, we inaugurated a new president. Though I don't believe America is the scene of carnage that our president described in his inaugural address, it's not hard to observe that he has come to power in an alarming time. Last year was the warmest year in the 137 years that the NOAA has been recording surface temperatures. That's the third straight year the global surface temperature average has been broken. Climate refugees are on the move on every continent. Manufacturing jobs that used to offer American workers decades of stability are now often executed overseas or by machines. High school diplomas are no longer adequate tickets to steady employment. And according to the New York Times last month, half of the American men who have dropped out of the workforce take pain medication on a daily basis. At a time when rapid accelerations in global interconnection mean tremors in Greek markets can send 401ks in Portsmouth crashing, who can blame people for becoming anxious? Who hasn't felt the urge to lock the door, climb into a womb of Netflix, and pull a figurative Brexit from the world? <laughs> I just really want to use Netflix and Brexit in the same sense. <laughs> Unfortunately, the dream of cutting ourselves off, the dream of isolationism, is just that. It's a dream, one that's no longer practical. We live in an interdependent world. The iPhone in your pocket is assembled from components made by 200 different suppliers in places as disparate as Thailand, Malaysia, the Czech Republic, the United States, South Korea, and the Philippines. Emissions from China interfere with the air over California. The shirt you're wearing may have been to more countries in Asia than you have. 
and the and pieces of the plastic bottle I threw away just a couple hours ago at Logan Airport will be in the ground or in the ocean when my great-grandchildren are running around. The truth is that in 2017, the more we can remember how interconnected we all are, the more we can train ourselves to empathize with the kids in our neighborhoods, beyond our borders, and in our futures, the better, the better off we'll be. There are a thousand, thousand ways to remind ourselves of that interdependence. Of course, we can get to know our police officers. We can bring our neighbors soup when they're sick. We can serve people who are less privileged than we are. We can travel. We can ask questions of the people cleaning our hotel rooms. We can volunteer at the library. You can come and support stuff like this. But there's one activity that has reliably reminded and educated me about human interconnectedness. It's reading. This is Wisława Simborska. She was an amazing Polish poet. If there's anybody who's looking for a, if you're like, I really need a Polish poet to read. <laughs> She's the one. She won uh, the Nobel in 1996 and gave this really sweet, short address. It's a great read if you have five minutes someday and want to find it online. Uh, and this quotation was next to me the whole time I worked on All the Light We Cannot See. And for a while, it was the epigraph, the opening quote. She said, uh, we all use phrases such as the ordinary world, ordinary life, the ordinary course of events. But in the language of poetry, nothing is usual or normal. Not a single stone and not a single cloud above it. Not a single day and not a single night after it. And above all, not a single existence. Not anyone's existence in this world. Without stories, we can get trapped in the prison of the familiar. All we would know is the normal me and the stereotype, the other. And so much of today's rhetoric, whether it's from the right or the left, the collective becomes everything. We gets defined against they. Throughout history, systematic hatred, whether it's perpetrated by slave owners, Nazis, the Taliban, the KKK, Boko Haram, or the extremists that we're currently calling ISIS, depends on objectifying people into groups, dismantling its adherents' abilities to understand and share the feelings of other people, and minimizing the complexity of the individual. But in novels and stories and poems, we celebrate the individual. Novels, I believe, are uniquely qualified to offer compassion, empathy, and attentiveness. The lesson of every single one of my favorite novels is this. The truth is more complicated than I thought. Reading and writing stories is not, despite appearances, about spending a lot of time by yourself. It's about learning to be able to look beyond the self, beyond the ego, to enter other lives and other worlds. It's about honing your sense of empathy so that a story might bridge the gap between the personal and the communal. If you find the right book, you can breach the walls of your skull and transcend the barriers of culture, race, class, and time. You can live the life of Hamlet or Hester Prynne or Huckleberry Finn. And if you keep practicing this skill, if you keep relearning the lesson that no one is normal, no one is usual, no one is ordinary, when you need it most, your imagination will be nimble and ready, capable of airlifting you out of the confines of yourself and dropping you into the life of whomever you choose, whether it's the neighbor who voted for the candidate you didn't care for, or the migrant worker who harvested the strawberry you're about to eat, or the child not so far from here who isn't sure where her next meal will come from. I'm not the first person to suggest that the imagination is a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it'll get. And in the months and years to come, we're going to need our imaginations more than ever. I hope it's not too bold to suggest that through novels, short stories, and poems, we can expand our imaginations, combat unilateralism and stereotype, deepen our experiences of life, and even in incremental but important ways, nudge the world toward goodness. Thanks, guys.
Hello. What's Anthony, that? I was going to start with your theory of beauty, oh. uh, but we don't have an hour, so I'm going to get to some of the other questions. Okay. It was really lovely to hear you, and we've got a number of questions that we'd love to get through, but we have a limited amount of time, so I'll try and do what I can. It's, it's interesting learning a little bit about the origins of this book, that you had the idea of radio, you had the blind girl, you had all of these elements before you arrived at World War II. And so many people began with an idea of writing a book about World War II and the battles. So how did that change, how did that change your perspective? And by the way, do we need another book about World War II? Right. At one point I was working on the novel, a friend told me that if you ripped all the pages of all the books written about the Second World War and dropped them on Germany, it would cover the entire country. <laughs> and so, you know, that just inserts this mosquito of doubt. Not that I didn't have a hundred in there already, but I'm like, why would I ever want to add one more? So I think, you know, it's kind of what I was trying to say there. You're just trying to find, tunnel, if there is anything universal, you're just finding it by tunneling through the particular and the individual. And that's the key of storytelling. So if you just tell one person's, in this case, two people's stories, maybe uh, you can start to hint at the stars above the clouds, but you're just playing around in the dirt most of the time. We've got a question about Laura, you know, why make her blind? But I'm curious about how you got inside of that experience so well. Did you actually experiment with it, counting steps, counting buildings, or um, blindfolding yourself? Yeah, I get that question a lot. It's funny. You know, for me, the, the bigger breach was trying to cross cultures. You know, being a bald Caucasian guy in Idaho at the supermarket, for me, it was harder to cr be, try to imagine myself as a French girl in, you know, in the 1930s rather than blindness. I had uh, one of my er very early short stories had a uh, visually impaired protagonist called The Shell Collector, and I've always just been interested in how to challenge myself using sentences to transport a reader that don't rely as heavily on visual imagery, that can rely on textures and smells and sounds. And, uh, so that has always been something I've, very, I've been very interested in. But yes, my, I have my boys blindfold me and walk me around, and uh, you do quickly get a sense of that vulnerability, although I think a blindfold is really in no way any, any even a metaphor, even a beginning to understand what it's like to be fully visually impaired. And then I read lots and lots of memoirs, you know, looking for people who had maybe had sight as kids and lost sight. One of the most important ones is something called And There Was Light by Jacques Luceron, a Frenchman who lost his sight when he was a boy. His parents just treated his disability in such a beautiful way that, you know, they never treated it as a tragedy. Um, they emptied a room in their apartment in Paris of furniture, and that was where he could go play and imagine himself. And he writes beautifully about color. Uh, he saw the world in terms of color. And as soon as I saw that, I knew I wanted Marie to have that kind of attitude towards his, her disability, too. You mentioned a little bit about getting into the character of Werner, you know, this young boy seeing that photograph. I just wanted to read this because it's so lovely. Thank you so much for portraying some Germans as human beings. I lived my first 50 years with guilt and shame. The next years I learned to live with responsibility and memory. It's wonderful that you pick San Malo, one of my favorite places, Danka. Oh, that's so nice. It is quite nice, but I wonder about that. Was there anxiety when you were writing about this character? Of course. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. In many ways, I invented von Rumpel, this gemologist who's hunting this stone in the novel, to try to give a reader a Nazi or a German who we were more used to seeing um, because I worried so much about making Werner too empathetic. Um, I think... Ultimately, there, he has a lot of moral failings, and I hope they become clear to the reader. As you see, Jutta, his sister, and Frederick operate in the novel. They uh, have much clearer moral pictures about what's right and wrong. Werner um, really tries to keep his head down, focus on engineering. He's not really a political animal, and I think that's to his detriment. And maybe that's to all of our detriment. I hope the reader will ask herself along the way, you know, wh what kind of things am I being complicit in right now if you're an American citizen Growing up, it's not necessarily, of course, to the level of the Holocaust, but what kind of things are we complicit in, you know, whether it's drone strikes or our use of single-use plastics or, in my case, flying around in airplanes all the time? Like, what kind of things are we doing that our grandkids will judge us harshly for when they come around? Hmm. Well, I know that you've talked in the past about writing this book when thousands of World War II veterans die every single day. And 
putting the memory, creating the stories that people, contemporary readers, would find interesting. But, you know, you also mentioned a little bit about the rise of nationalism. This is going on all over Europe, um, anti-immigration fervor, you know, fascism. And, but it doesn't look like it used to look. And I wonder about the kind of moral questions that you see us asking ourselves now as we're watching, in many places, the rise of fascism. Yeah, gosh. Um, it's a huge question, so we could take all day. But I feel like uh, the book is really, this novel is about technology, as I was trying to bring up. You know, the seed, as you mentioned, is about radio. And so I hope we are asking ourselves questions about how are these new technologies being used right now? You know, YouTube is this amazing thing. You can teach yourself to repair a tractor. You can teach yourself Farsi on YouTube. You know, my son is like making ravioli and tortellini by watching these videos of these old Italian ladies making tortellini. That's an incredible educational tool. But at the same time, something like YouTube or Twitter are being used to radicalize young people or to recruit for ISIS. And uh, is, that, you know, is, you, is that YouTube's responsibility? Is that our responsibility? You know, how do we police these things if we're policing them at all? Just last week, the, or maybe this week, the federal government was asking Twitter to divulge the identity of an account that was being critical of the Trump administration. Thankfully, you know, Twitter refused, but you know, that kind of, those kind of legal challenges are scary. And you wonder, you know, what is the role of these, new, are the, of these new technologies? Are you talking to your kids about them? Are we talking to ourselves about them and how we use them? Question from the audience here. How do you know when you've got the sound, the music, the words of a sentence just right for all that you're trying to convey and choose those words? That's one comment and, and note that's been made many times in this book that the words, the poetry of the language. Uh, yeah, that's something I spend tons of time on. I don't know if I'm good at it, but I'm trying. Uh, you know, just like that picture of, like, say, salt and pepper, you know, a lot of sentences, they come out and they just look like salt and pepper on the table. They look sort of dull, you know. Uh, I will choose combinations of words that I've seen thousands of times before, like the sun will glint on the water or, uh, you know, the crystal is clear. It's a crystal clear day. And then it's only on revision you start reading through and you're like, you know, what is clear about a crystal and why am I evoking a crystal here? And can I disrupt the order, the sequence of language that people are used to seeing to try to make it a little bit sharper and clearer? You know, you don't want to exhaust your reader, but you do want your reader to feel awake. You don't want your reader to sleepwalk through sentences. And so, uh, you, you know, I'm always trying to avoid regular combinations of words that come immediately to me. And the beauty of writing is that you have revision. You get to go back and fix it. And, and so that's what just takes time. But it's fun. It's tinkering. It's playing around. How about the chapters? You, why did you write them in the non-chronological order is this question? When was this decision made? And I'm wondering myself, if you did you write one full story chronologically, then the other, and start to fold it together? Yeah, good question. So not only do, do the chapters alternate back and forth between Mahri and Werner, but there are 13 books inside of this novel, and they move back and forth in time. Uh, a lot of it was motivated by anxiety. I was, uh, <laughs> like most things in my life, uh, they, I was asking a reader to wait like 480 pages for these two characters to intersect. And I thought she would never be patient enough to wait that long unless I gave her some hints that these two parallel lines were actually slightly inclined toward each other and would intersect. So I knew I wanted to start the book with the suggestion that they would be awfully close to each other. So that was one thing. And then the other thing was I wanted, as I mentioned a little bit, I wanted the book to feel like maybe the spiral of a shell or I wanted it to feel a little bit like the map of Saint-Malo from above, to feel like this labyrinth that the reader's moving herself through, like a puzzle she has to solve herself. So I thought one way to do that was to disrupt the chronology as well. So really I'm asking a reader too much. I'm asking her to keep four plates spinning, Mahri during the Siege of Saint-Malo, Werner during the Siege of Saint-Malo, and then Mahri in all the years leading up to that siege, and Werner in all those years leading up to it. So that's what, another reason I did shorter chapters. I felt like to keep touching those plates in the reader's mind, just leave them on the page briefly, then let her keep moving through them. Hmm. And when you're creating this universe, of course, we have a lot of big historical facts that we know about what was going on in Brittany at that time in the world and the World War? So, when you're writing a novel like this, 
when does the permission to invent come? Like, what's the line for you? How, how deeply do you go? Is it down to the city, down to the building, or to create something that is true or factually true? Yeah, really good question. Uh, in Saint-Malo, now, I guess there are tours you can take with, like, an app or something. God knows how this stuff starts, but, like, you can walk around the novel somehow in the city. And then occasionally people get angry with me, and they're like, well, we tried to find the bakery, and it's not there. <laughs> Uh, so I, I feel like, uh, you know, there is, a, there is a license, but there is so much more responsibility. I mean, to not make jokes, the, the important thing, so important that you mentioned, it's not just veterans of these wars, but we're losing everybody for whom the Second World War is memory every day, losing thousands of them, and it's transitioning much more into history. And history is a more malleable thing. And, uh, you know, you can see how politicians invoke the Second World War as this time of moral clarity. And I think it's really important to remember it wasn't that long ago, and it was an extremely complicated time. And so I try to make sure, like, if I'm going to say it was raining on a certain day, I try to make sure I have meteorological records and see if it actually was raining on that day. I, I have the luxury of having invented people but trying to get the streets to intersect correctly, you know, get the right birds, the right snails in the right place, although there's always the annoying marine biologist from Woods Hole or something who's like, Dear Anthony, technically that mollusk would not have been present during that season. But I, you know, you're knitting a dream, when you're writing fiction, you're knitting this dream together, and you don't want the reader to wake up, and the only way to wake her up is to you know, put a thread out of place. And so sometimes, you know, you, it does, you want to get every single one of those details right. And the, the very, I think it's the first printing of the novel. I have Etienne, Mahri's uncle, who, who talks about listening to foreign broadcasts when he was a kid. He says, Anna, you, we used to get Pakistan on our shortwave radio. Oops. So the tide, <laughs> yeah, the tide of letters starts coming in pretty quickly. It's like, uh, Pakistan was not technically a country until 1947. <laughs> And, you know, all you're like, oh, God, right, of course, crap. So the amazing thing about e-books, though, that is so lovely is that I can email my editor and, like, literally overnight, like, your Kindle's just sitting there on the nightstand, but overnight, it's like, blue, Pakistan's replaced. <laughs> so you can fix errors more quickly. But in later printings of the novel, Pakistan is gone. <laughs> How about the research into how the resistance used radio? Did, was that true? Did they use radio in oh, that sure. way? Oh, sure. Yeah, especially on the Eastern Front. I mean, the Eastern Front is this incredible geography, Maine to Florida, basically. And the extermination of people, not just during the Holocaust, but the extermination of this whole generation of young Russian men. Uh, but yeah, these partisans with much more inferior technology risking their lives to broadcast uh, as codes or locations. Uh, you know, incredible heroism. I hope throughout the novel, if you get a chance to read it, you know, you th you're asking yourself, what would I do in these situations? And, you know, certainly I don't know if I would have been brave enough to do the things that happened. I certainly wouldn't have been brave enough to be, say, Frederick in the novel, who really recognizes that what's going on around him is morally wrong. Uh, you know, we're all in those positions all the time in life, but never so stark as in wartime. Hmm. And those accounts, too, the training of the Hitler youth or the soldiers specifically, where did you find out about that? That's all real. I found mostly through diaries and journals. In fact, in some ways, I minimized the level of violence at these schools. You know, these schools were predicated on bullying and uh, really about driving the weakest members out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for all the things that are, you know, bummers about America right now, we've really got a good consciousness of bullying coming up in the past 10 years and you think it wasn't that long ago that that kids were being bullied there at one point i mentioned the novel just for a half of a sentence that, you know they play this game where they'd have 10 red flags and 10 blue flags 20 boys each you know boy gets a flag and you say the game's over when one group of 10 has all the flags you know and that's the, that's what you do it did it's cool yeah, thankfully we don't live in that time. I often would think about my son, one of my sons who's pretty sensitive, and uh, you know, I'm just very grateful that we're living in a time when he's allowed to go to school and look at birds and play Minecraft and do his nerdy things without getting too bullied for it. Mm. It's a terrifying thing, a terrifying time, and, and you know, you grew up in the middle of America. I'm wondering how you put yourself in that place and and. What, how you had to get to, where you had to go to get to that place of 
you know, unbelievable fear as a boy because that feeling of fear of, of a boy, you know, of course, I would go for the place with the cake and the cream. Of course, I would go for the escape from, from the mine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I agree. I, I think for me, books were a way to live alternate lives. And, you know, I feel like any life that has books in it are a way to enrich your own life and put perspective on your own life and shine these mirrors on what privileges you've had and uh, what places you haven't been able to go and want to go. And so books have always been a way for me to travel into other places and other lives. And it complicates and multiplies your life. You only get one. Why not try to live as many lives as you can and be as curious about as many things as you can while you're here if you only get to be here 80 years? How about the Sea of Flames? The story behind that sounds like myth. It sounds like a legend that could have been true. Where did that come from for you? Uh, yeah, the more you start reading about these gemstones, especially valuable ones, you know, museums love to foster these stories because they drive attendance and they maybe deter theft, is what they say if there are curses. Uh, but uh, I read about this, it's called the Delhi Sapphire in the British Museum. I've never seen that stone, but uh, supposedly very rational people, scientists in the museum, believe this stone is cursed. In the 80s, a uh, guy was driving it to a symposium and his car got hit by lightning. And then his wife got really sick and he's convinced it was because of the sapphire. And I love that, I love the way, you know, my mom was a science teacher and she, you know, is also a very devout Catholic, and she reconciles all these things beautifully. There's this mass, I think it's like right around now in April, when they, maybe some of you are Catholics, there's this mass where the priest is like, the woman will be subservient to the man in all ways. It's like a reading from the Bible. And you can see the smoke like rising out of my mom's head. But she reconciles that, you know, she finds value in that hour on Sunday thinking about larger things. And... Uh, I love that she's a scientist with some superstitions too. There's something wonderful about, very human about that. So I wanted the Sea of Flames to be a way to play with superstition and uh, myth and also rational science and see if those things, because they coexist within us. Mm. Well, we got a glimpse of some of the things that you're interested in that led you to writing. And with such wide interests and so many things, I'm wondering about the process of narrowing it down for a book. This is... You stopped writing this book halfway through or in the process to write a memoir. I mean, right. how, do you, how, do you, how do you reel it in, I guess? Yeah, no, attention, uh, attention can be my problem. I get really excited about things and then <laughs> maybe you can tell. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes deadlines, artificial deadlines or otherwise, really help keep you focused. And sometimes your wife has to have a little talk with you. Uh, but I also am guilty of trying to cram things in, like I'm just cram. I'm like, okay, oh yes, I'll totally make this about snails, and like, oh okay, now shortwave radios, I'm going to read about that, and I'm going to build a little crystal set, and then I'll put that in the book. So occasionally it's a matter of cramming a book full of a lot of things and then starting to pare away, getting a few nights sleep, and then removing, rather than adding, and sometimes more fun for me, adding is... Um, Anyway, I like to cram a lot of different things into projects. But taking a break, for, for me, you know, this was 10 years, but I was reading so often about the destruction of human beings that I would take a break to try to work on other projects, also just to relieve some of that psychological pressure. You know, when you work alone, and some days you just, all you see is your wife and kids, you know, sometimes you need a little break. So I would write pieces for Condé Nast Traveler or, you know, write a newspaper piece I wrote for the Boston Globe. Most of the time I was working on this book, too. So, you know, also, also there's a reward in finishing something short. You know, you get, if you finish something a thousand words long and it's done and the editor's like, okay, it's going to print, it feels kind of good. You're like, okay, right, I can still finish something even though I <laughs> can't seem to finish this novel. Do you have any advice for a new writer who has a passion project to nurture? Of course. Uh, Read, 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 you know. I think read widely. Just if you want to be a literary fiction writer, it doesn't mean you shouldn't read everything. You know, read the newspapers, uh, you know, read short stories, read poems, read magazines, read teen romance if you want. You know, I think finding those things that turn you on will always can refill the well and get you excited about writing. And then the classic discipline of the chair, they call it, you know, just butt time. Put your butt in a chair or get a stand-up desk if you want to be fancy. 
and just grind. You know, you've got to be there. It's, uh, it's just like all the athletic metaphors. The more you practice your putts, the more you practice your free throws, the better you'll get. The more time you spend on something, the more times you build a narrative start to finish, the better you're going to get at it. So I think it's just a matter of discipline and reading, looking at the masters. The great gift we have here in the United States is that for free, you can go into a library and study the masters who have come before you. And that's something to not take for granted. Mm. We actually spoke to Elizabeth Gilbert on this stage after her phenomenal success with Eat, Pray, Love. And she was talking about what it felt like after that, that looking at her life and thinking, you know, my greatest success might be behind me. And I wonder about, you know, you've written a Pulitzer Prize winning book. It was an Oprah book pick on the New York Times bestsellers list for three years. So is there some voice in your head when you're sitting right down to write the next one that says, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Um, maybe, but I think it all depends on how you, do, how you define success. You know, I think it's really important to ask yourself and your kids that. Um, you know, for me, the real happiest times in my life are like at my kids' flag football practices at the rain, you know, wrestling with them. And they don't think of me as a writer, and I'm not thinking of myself as a writer at that time. So yeah, in terms of you know, uh, capitalism, um, uh, yeah, you know, maybe this book was more successful than my previous ones, uh, but uh, I'm not sure it's necessarily a better book than the other four. You know, you're just at different places in your life, and so as long as I can rein in my agent's expectations and my publisher's expectations on the next book, uh, you know, in terms of how many uh, book clubs in Tampa Bay are going to read it, uh, I think, you know, it's, it'll be fine. I don't feel that kind of pressure. In fact, it's kind of, uh, in, it's a lightening in a lot of ways. You know, to win the Pulitzer means that if my next book is like 1,900 pages, my publisher still might print it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Um, so I'm sorry that we have to close, but I'm going to thank some of the people who make this wonderful event of Writers on a New England Stage possible. The Music Hall executive producer, Patricia Lynch. The Music Hall producer is Margaret Talcott. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. Our broadcast producer for NHPR is Taylor Quimby. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer is Ian Martin. Can we give it up just for musical director and Bob Lord and Dreadnought? I'm Virginia Prescott. Please do join me in thanking Anthony Doerr.